hard to believe we're going to have another week in Northeast Ohio where we're partly consumed by Donald Trump. Aren't we finished with him? It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon, back from a week off, Layla Tassi and Laura Johnston. I hope you all had a wonderful weekend. Absolutely. I didn't miss much last week, did I? (laughs) (laughs) I was so sad, Jane, that you were not here to talk about the end of Larry Householder after a year of buildup. You knew it, though. You said every time you go away, some big bomb drops. Yeah. And oh, by the way, Mike DeWine lifted the state of emergency and more budgets, (laughs) shenanigans. I I Uh missed it all. Yeah, that that piece we did, though, listing the 28 policy changes that the Senate Republicans put into the bill really showed people how much they're breaking the law when it comes to single subject legislation. I think there's going to be ramifications from that good piece. All right, let's start. Does Donald Trump still have the political mojo to torpedo the career of a popular Northeast Ohio congressman, Anthony Gonzalez? as the former president heads to Northeast Ohio for a rally this week. Jane Cahoon, it's bizarre to me that he's coming into our environs. This is his first big rally, he hopes, uh, since he he lost the election, and he did lose the election. What do we expect he's going to do? Is he just going to use everything he's got to try and, and end the career of Anthony Gonzalez because he voted his conscience to impeach him? Well, I think that's that's certainly part of it. He's he's here to stump for uh, a guy named Max Miller, who was a, his former aide, who's challenging the uh, Gonzalez in the primary uh, over his vote to impeach the former president for inciting the January sixth U.S. Capitol riot. And uh, so, but he's also going to promote, you know, what they call his America first policies. And, you know, it can't just be about Max Miller, right? It's got to be about Trump. So he's going to be, you know, touting his own credentials and, and slamming Joe Biden. I'm, I'm sure of that. So, but, uh, you know, we, we were talking about the question of like, is it going to make a difference? Uh, Will he be able to torpedo Gonzalez's career? I think, it's a matter of opinion. You know, one important thing to note is that Trump is quite popular here in Ohio. He won the state by eight points in both of his presidential runs. Uh, and that's, you know, at the heart of why most of the Republican U.S. Senate candidates are trying to uh, cozy up to him. But when it comes to Gonzalez, I think it's far from a, a slam dunk here. I mean, he's Gonzalez has 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 been the object of scorn for this impeachment vote. But and um, Mark Meadows, who Sabrina Eaton talked to him, he's Trump's former chief of staff. He thinks that Trump's endorsement of Max Miller is a is a real game changer. But here's the thing. Apart from this impeachment controversy, Gonzalez has been regarded as a rising Republican star. He's smart, engaged, and common sense congressman. With and he generally has conservative values, and he's getting things done. He he won his last general election with sixty three percent of the vote, and he's he's better known and he's better funded than Miller. Although I guess that could change after this rally. Um, and of course, it doesn't hurt that Gonzalez is a, a former football star at Ohio State and in the in the NFL. But then just to throw another wild card in here, the, the district's boundaries are going to be different because we have redistricting. So it's hard to say whether Gonzalez's fellow Republicans who are involved in drawing these lines are going to try to stick it to him 
or or not. So I don't know. It's odd that Trump has chosen Northeast Ohio to to come to. He didn't actually win in our area, but he's going to Wellington, which is a place filled with Trump Pence yard signs. Trump 2020, Trump 2024. It's like a pocket of Trumpism in a largely anti-Trump geography. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, and I'm sure people are going to come from all over the state, his his base, uh, to provide the adulation that he craves. Do you think so? I, I mean, it's it's a summer weekend after the pandemic where people are finally able to get back to doing some things that they enjoy doing. Are they really going to waste a weekend day to go see the former president bloviate? I think his diehards, you know, that will be no barrier. They will, they'll be there. That's my prediction. Okay. Well, we'll have to see how that goes <laughs> this weekend. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is it looking like the Indians, Browns, and Cavs will ace out the Cuyahoga County Casino and Racinos when it comes to sports gambling in Ohio? Lord Johnston, this is a pivot, and even though no one admits it, it does seem like this is retribution because the casinos went with the ballot initiative around the legislature to get the casinos approved in Ohio, something legislators have never forgiven them for. Yeah, I mean, we're talking years later, but the bill legalizing sports betting that's currently favored by the Ohio legislature would actually give preference to professional sports teams to open retail sports book locations. Uh, and that way, the casinos wouldn't get a piece of this the sports betting pie. So Senate Bill 176 passed the Senate on Wednesday, arrived in the House on Friday for consideration, I believe. It would only allow three licenses for these actual brick and mortar in-person sports books in counties with a million or more residents. Counties with fewer residents might have no licenses, but it looks like Columbus and and Franklin County would also have three. But under this bill, the Casino Control Commission would offer preference to pro sports teams. So that means the Browns, the Indians, and the Cavs could get all three licenses. They could build their own sports booking, sports betting facilities separate from their arenas or or stadiums, and they'd be nearby. They'd have the cachet of having their team names. And then Jack Cleveland Casino, the Thistledown Racino, would be left out. There's a, a Dayton area Republican sponsoring this bill. His name is Naraj Antani. He envisions these retail locations as is where people could buy food and drinks, make bets, and where the team is kind of branded on all the logos and the, you know, the sports memorabilia. Well, here's what makes this more interesting. You know, coming soon, a month, a week, later this year, uh, is going to be a proposal to spend a whole lot of public money on Progressive Field. It's mm-hmm. time the Indians contract the leases is, is in the in the is in the windshield. You can see it coming. So this is coming. The, the city's been planning. The county's been planning. It makes no sense to do it in a mayoral election year because I think just about every candidate will come out against it and make it very difficult like the arena. But if the Indians suddenly have this new revenue source provided by the legislature, won't that add more ammunition to those who say, don't spend 80 or $100 million on progressive field? They're going to get it through gambling Let's spend it on bike paths and other things that benefit more people. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a legitimate argument, and it's a public discussion that we should be having. I mean, we don't know for sure that these teams are going to want it, but 
I mean, if they're like, hey, here you go on a silver platter, you can make more money, um, get more fans to come to your facilities, then yeah, I think they would consider it. But it definitely needs to be part of the discussion. There's already some pushback against the sports betting bill, the Fair Gaming Coalition of Ohio, which represents more than 10,000 bars and restaurants, bowling alleys. They're saying that the casinos and racinos get too too preferential of treatment on this. So, hey, maybe the casinos will join that and be like, wait, we're not getting enough preferential treatment. We want to push back on this too. Yeah, but let's step back to the to the, to the the question I asked. And Leila Tassi, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. There's a big, big debate in this country about public funding of sports stadiums, that the public always owns them and people, you know, the critics say, hey, you're giving money to billionaires. If through public policy, the three teams are granted this lucrative revenue source, shouldn't that play into the debate about whether the public should continue to pay for stadiums? Oh, are you, you're directed, you're. (laughs) 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 Well, listen, personally, I don't think any of these stadiums need to be, need to be overhauled. (laughs) I, I I think there's nothing wrong with, with progressive stadium or with, uh, you know, with any of them. So, so I, I have a, I take real issue with any public funds being, uh, used to, to overhaul these, uh, especially considering, you know, all of the other issues that, that could be addressed right now for, for the region. Um, so, um, yeah. It would be interesting if somebody added into the legislative debate about this, the notion that, Hey, we're expecting you to use this revenue to upkeep your stadium so that you stop hitting up the public for that. I I just can't imagine they're going to say this isn't much money that, that, you know, this is not that big a deal. It's not going to be that big a revenue source, but let's be real. If there's a brick and mortar sports gambling site affiliated with the Browns, people are going to spend money there and there'll be some money involved giving the sports teams extra revenue based on public policy seems like it should be a more wide scale debate about public support of sports teams. Be interesting to see if that gets added to the conversation before this comes to the ground. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What is the ticking time bomb for city budgets in Ohio now that there is no more state of coronavirus emergency? Leila Tassi, we touched on this last week when we discussed the lifting of the emergency status of the for the coronavirus in Ohio, but Bob Higgs went out and did a full story about it and bad times are ahead for cities. Yeah. You know, so the lifting of this state's emergency order this past Friday means that the days are numbered for cities like Cleveland that had continued collecting income tax from commuters who haven't been working in the city for months. At the start of the pandemic, the Ohio legislature had included this provision in a state law that permitted cities to continue taxing income of people who worked within the city limits pre-pandemic, despite the fact that lockdown orders forced everyone to be working from home. And that's become so controversial as the Buckeye Institute started filing lawsuits against cities on behalf of workers who hadn't set foot in the city for months. In one case, the plaintiff had been working from home in Pennsylvania for the past year. Well, that special taxing permission was set to expire 30 days after Governor Mike DeWine lifts the state of emergency declaration. And as I said, he just did that on Friday. And that means the clock has begun ticking. And by mid-July, cities are going to be left to figure out what that means for them, especially as it becomes clear that that many former commuters aren't returning to their offices. 
And that really could be devastating to municipal budgets. In Cleveland, you know, the city takes two and a half percent from paychecks. About 85 percent of Cleveland's income tax revenue is collected from commuters, more than $360 million this year. Losing just 10 percent of that could be crushing. Uh, Mayor well, what Jackson, do you do? Yeah. What do you do with the people that come back part time? I mean, I'm spending about eight hours in the office yeah. now. So right. does that mean they get you know, a fifth of the taxes they collected from me. They shouldn't that, get it exactly. all if I'm never there. Well, and that, you know, if cities aren't already trying to figure out how to how to deal with this and how to, to this is just going to, to, you know, blindside them. If And it sounds like, you know, Mayor Jackson's office has said, you know, Cleveland has employers of various sizes and categories. So we're cautiously optimistic that this diverse landscape will ultimately lessen the effect this isn't really the time for cautious optimism. You better be planning for this. I mean, you know, like we have seen even in our own company, we open the doors for people to come back and people really aren't. You know, I'm no. sitting in my <laughs> armchair right now <laughs> recording this. And so, you know, I, I imagine everyone is going to be, um, you know, with it, it's just going to be a real problem. And And you know what? There are smaller cities. That would be hit hard, too, that Bob Higgs pointed out that Mayfield, for example, that's where progressive insurance is. Of the $18.8 million they collected in income taxes in 2019, as much as 70 percent of it was from the thousands of employees who worked at the two progressive campuses in the village. If those don't if they don't all come back, what's going to happen to that entire that entire village? I think this will likely stir conversations about finding a better way to fund cities in Ohio, maybe through a blend of tax revenues. And also we should be talking about whether it's time to pool resources through regional collaborations or, I don't know, even consolidate cities. I mean, no one gives up their fiefdoms that easily, but when it, when it boils down to it, you know, when you have the major cities hemorrhaging money because of, of you know, this, this pr problem, um, you know, maybe they can, they're in a position to really kind of be the catalyst for that kind of conversation. But even if you created a countywide municipal income tax of some rate, say two and a quarter percent, uh, so that employers would not have to have this bookkeeping nightmare of calculating the number of hours people spend at home and in the city or, or whatever, which is, I think where we're headed, you would still have a battle over how you divvy it up. Cleveland would still want its share. And how do you calculate what Cleveland's share is unless you know exactly how many hours people are working downtown? This just creates a bookkeeping nightmare that that I don't see a solution for. But Cleveland should not be getting income taxes from people who don't live there and don't work there. So, so something has to give that doesn't put the onus on employers to to start sorting this all out or maybe it will maybe they'll force the employers to you know but we've talked about the countywide income tax as a solution that's the employer solution how does that work for the cities i don't know i mean that's that's a great question but i think i mean you'd have to peg it to not necessarily where people are working from because you know technology allows us to work from anywhere I mean, I could move out of state and still work for you. <laughs> I promise I won't. <laughs> but, I, I, but, you know, then who is entitled within the state of Ohio to collect from me, uh, you know, and, and divert it to, you know, send it to, to any municipality? I mean, would Cleveland collect if I lived in Florida and worked remotely? I, so, well, so it would have to be. From that guy in Philadelphia. I mean, that's, <laughs> right, you know. right. I mean, so, so. We, I think it would have to be kind of a population-based uh, calculation, right? So that, 
so that money is more evenly or, dispersed and has nothing really to do with with where you're living, um, you know, or get to the state. Or, or get to what you said earlier. Get rid of the municipal boundaries. Create a countywide city of Cleveland and and stop this nonsense right. with the 56 municipalities and 33 school boards. And that I mean, would be more equitable in, in so many other ways, too, not just in how money is, is. I mean, we would have services that would be more equitable across boundaries. We've been talking about this almost since the beginning. Because I know. it seems so outrageous that they were able to take your money, even though you they're providing you with zero services. It's it will come to a head now. It'll be interesting to see how cities respond. Somehow, I believe this will all end up in the courts. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Why did the Ohio Senate Republicans erase $1.3 million from their proposed budget that would have made sure contractors removing lead from houses would not negligently make the problems worse? Jane Cahoon, it's a big problem when you are removing lead paint to not spread the dust throughout the house because that's counterproductive. You're trying to get it out of there. And there's all sorts of technologies that exist to make sure that doesn't happen. So there was a program to do that. And the Senate Republicans want to kill it. Why? I mean, just when we thought these Ohio Senate Republicans had found all the possible ways to stick it to low income and disadvantaged people, they they found yet another way. They they did see fit to grant a 5% income tax cut in the budget that will cost the state $874 million, but they didn't want to pay this $1.3 million to promote this lead-safe training and certification for contractors. So they don't spread this dust, as you uh, referred to. But, uh, you know, I don't think I have to explain how harmful lead dust can be for children who are exposed to it. Uh, we all know the, the devastating effects that it's had on kids. But Governor Mike DeWine's initial budget had uh, $650,000 in each of the next two years to establish this program. It would be administered by the Department of Health, and it would enforce what the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency calls its lead renovation, repair, and painting rule. This rule was established in 2010, and it requires that contractors be certified in lead-safe practices before they perform renovations, repairs, or painting on homes that were built before 1978. That was the year lead paint was banned by the EPA for consumer use. This money would allow the state to enforce this uh, federal law that requires the contractors be properly certified. And apparently right now that's not happening to a, a great degree. So, uh, as I said, they they establish this. Um, they want to. The federal law allows state to take over enforcement of this, and that's what Ohio wants to do. Uh, I guess fourteen states and one Native American tribe currently do their own programs like this. But and after this allocation to get this program started, apparently the fines and the fees would make it self sustaining, so they they wouldn't have to keep allocating funds for it. I guess the Senate Republicans' argument for removing this from the budget, this is according to State Senator Matt Dolan, who chairs the Senate Finance Committee, is that some senators feel that enforcement of the rule would drive up the cost of home repairs and that contractors can learn lead-safe practices on their own. So, But Dolan did say they're looking at this and he hopes it's going to be back in the budget, as did DeWine's spokesman. He said they're hopeful that, that they're going to restore this, but... Who knows when it comes to these Senate Republicans? 
You would think that Matt Dolan, if he felt that way, wouldn't have allowed it to be removed in the first place. This feels like another one where we're sticking it to the cities. Cleveland is about to embark on a massive program of removing lead. It's gotten very serious about it. There's a coalition that's together. They're raising the money. There's talk of using some of the stimulus money to do it. So, of course, right on the edge of a lot of money being spent to make Cleveland homes safe, the Senate Republicans take away a, a pretty necessary rule that would have helped ensure Cleveland kids stay healthy during this process. I just don't get it. It's, it's like everything they do sticks it to the cities. It's, yeah. it's all and to just disadvantaged people. There's yeah. so much in this budget that's it attacks poor them. people, right? They're just, yeah. it's like, it's, it's strange. Remember, they, remember when we, we launched all those, remember when you launched all those stories about like, what would, what would it look like if, if Northeast Ohio or Northern Ohio <laughs> seceded from, from the state? The oh, Western Reserve. Well. Yeah. It would be I, I, a much let's better renew place. That, that, that p- proposal. <laughs> we could shake off Johnston. the yoke. Only if we get to uh, rerun the video of the, the song that we had, which was like the catchiest you know, um, slogan ever for a new state. Did we have a it's, jingle that went? Oh, we had this? a jingle. It oh was amazing. It named God. every county that was going to be in our new Western Reserve because we—that's how far we got. We delineated it. We, we let people vote on the lines. It was great. Yeah, and it would have shaken off the yoke of a bunch of rural legislators who continued to have the anti-city bias in the legislation they passed. I and mean, we did that partly tongue-in-cheek, but it was a serious. It was an effort to show just how much better off we'd be if we weren't under the yoke of rural legislators. Mm-hmm. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What did HUD Secretary Marcia Fudge have to say about home ownership upon her return to Northeast Ohio on the eve of Juneteenth? Laura Johnston, Marcia Fudge has been busy doing things that helped Northeast Ohio since she left her job as a congresswoman to become the HUD secretary. What did she say when she was here on Friday? Yeah, she said she, first of all, was glad to be back. It had been a month since she'd been here. But she dropped what I thought was an astounding statistic, that the gap between the number of white and black home homeowners in 2019 was as large as it was in 1968 when the Fair Housing Act was passed. And she said, you know, these barriers prevent many black people from owning homes. They fall in line with the systemic racism that has plagued the United States through its entire history. She said, we've never fully embraced the Fair Housing Act in this country. She said, today we do when i say it's a new day in hud it's a new day in hud so the black homeowners collaborative which is made up of more than 100 groups and individuals they organized the event at csu at the student center on friday and the purpose was to announce this plan called three by 30 which aims to help black people own a net of three million more homes nationwide by 2030 that to happen, the work needs to be done on local and the federal level in areas like home ownership counseling, making loans easier to acquire, building more housing stock. The Census Bureau in April released some num- numbers that the home ownership rate for Black households in the first quarter of the year was 45% compared to 73.8% for white households. And it's the banks are not issuing enough loans to prospective home buyers in impoverished majority Black areas like areas of, of Cleveland and Cuyahoga County. Yeah, it's, it was a kind of a nice event to have right on the eve of the first federal holiday of June mm-hmm. 15th. Actually, Friday was the holiday uh, right. for, for federal well, workers. 
Exactly. Yes. Saturday was the official Juneteenth first holiday. And it all happened so quickly last week that, yeah, Friday was a a federal day off. The state government ended up giving workers off. So, um, yeah, it was nice to have her here for that. And I mean, basically, they said if we don't do something, it's going to get worse. That inaction means that black home ownership rates will go even lower and remain there for the next 20 years. So as much as you think we have come a long way, you look at numbers like that and it is really disheartening. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Layla, I'm going to go out of order here. What did Republican candidate for Cuyahoga County Executive Lee Weingart have to say about incumbent Armand Budish's decision to unilaterally award $4.3 million to university hospitals without going to the county council or even explaining his actions when the award became public? Well, Courtney Astolfi spoke to Weingart and he said, this is just the latest example of Budish making decisions unilaterally to the detriment of the county. Another example he cited was back in February when Budish decided, contrary to the county charter, that the new sheriff would answer to him rather than maintain his autonomy. And Weingart pointed to the recent example of Budish's decision to cave to the nimbyism in the city of Independence and forced the removal of more than 100 homeless men from a hotel where they had been sent to avoid contracting COVID in crowded shelter facilities. So Weingart said, you know, when you try and act on your own, which is what he's been doing in all these cases, you don't act very well. So in in the case at hand, Budish announced during a press briefing a couple weeks ago that he had directed $3.4 million to university hospitals for a program that would serve babies born with opioid addiction. Well, that appropriation did not go through the normal county approval process, nor was it open for bids, which is astounding considering that MetroHealth, the county hospital, has its own program of this nature and probably would have appreciated the chance at that money. Budish's administration defended his his decision by saying that this money isn't county money per se, but rather it's a charitable donation from Johnson and Johnson that stems from the settlements a few years back over the opioid crisis. So because it doesn't technically pass through the county coffers, the appropriations rules don't apply and Budish is free to choose who gets the money on his own. That's their argument. Weingart said, you know, yeah. I, I just don't I would love to see what part of the charter he points to that says that. But <laughs> but even if even if technically that's correct, right. the spirit of the new government was meant to work together. That there, right, that there right. was not we were not supposed to have a day anymore where one official could just direct lots of money, which was what Weingart was it seems like his yeah. overarching theme was you got to work together to have checks and balances no matter what the rules are, because the spirit of this government is that. Definitely. Even if the technicalities of the of the county charter permit it, you know, you should be seeking out the the the, the council's approval or, or at least working collectively to make these decisions. And he said, you know, that he, if elected, would ensure that county gets the best deal it can for county taxpayers and and to be most inclusive. And to do that, you have to include county council members. Okay, so it's been almost a week now since we reported this, or half a week. And when we reported it, Budish refused to answer questions, refused to say how he chose UH, refused to say if he had entertained any other proposals. Metro Health, of course, said they were unaware of this. So now that the time has passed and he's been on the hot seat, 
Has he come out and explained any of those things? No, not yet. Not yet. You know, this is how their communications work with us. They say, you know, that's all we have for you. (laughs) And it leaves several questions unanswered still on the table. And so, you know, Courtney Astolfi has has had to work with within the framework of that for a long time. I got a taste of that when I reported on the homeless shelter, uh, you know, the Ramada Inn situation in the independence last week or the week before. It's, uh, you know, I, I see how how difficult it is to to get Buddhist to answer to any of these questions. So um, maybe maybe we'll so, take another crack at it. <laughs> so. As we're talking about bicameralism here, the fact that we have a county council and a county executive as checks and balances, this would seem to be the time for the county council to assert itself and demand these answers, right? Are they doing yeah. that? Well, you know, the uh, the county council president is is asking the, the county law department to issue a um, an opinion on whether Budish should have come to council for this for, for this appropriation. But, you know, I'm sure that they're going to. It's it's the county's law department. It's within the administration. So, of course, they're probably going to take Budish's side on this. So we'll see if, if it's it's yet to be seen but, whether or not they will raise this as a, a, a bigger issue uh, within county council. I mean, they have the power to call Budish to the table sure. and ask him questions. Even sure. if the, the law department says, yeah, he can do it. They could still do oversight and say, whoa, 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 you, you directed a lot of money to somebody unilaterally. Let's talk about that. Right. It, 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 you would think they would take offense at this, that they would say, wait, he's usurping our, our budgeting ability. Uh, we need to talk to him. We'll have right. to, to see. We're going to keep asking these questions ourselves. It'd be nice if somebody in official position would join us. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That does it for a Monday. We're going to have a newsy week. I can feel it just with Donald Trump coming. We'll have all sorts of extra craziness in this first week of official summer. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. 